so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Can you hear me now? Yeah, somebody had canceled you. I had canceled myself because I dropped the box. And Which I had one to... are you, Josh? Number one. Number one, baby. Number one. That's what he tells himself every the, morning the in the one. mirror. <laughs> I am number one. I mean, he is the star of the show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the real-life studio once again are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. And Brent Leatherwood. Howdy, y'all. We're back together again because last week we, we weren't exactly together again. Because Brent does not pay because attention to directions. I We scheduled a podcast to be recorded. I showed up to the place where we record the podcast. No one else did. Yeah, so Brent didn't get the memo that no one was coming to the office last Friday. And so he showed up to do the podcast all by his lonesome. In fact, if you listened to last week's super truncated episode, it was because uh, we ate up 30 minutes of our recording time trying to help Brent figure out how to run a studio as a one-man show. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> hey, I can add it to my resume now, so that's great. So it was a really good time, but guess what? We are glad to be back with you. The sun is shining here in beautiful Nashville, and look, it is just a great day to be here with our colleagues and to hang out with you guys once again. And so, Lindsay, so that we can get into it this week, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about. All right. Well, it's good to be back here talking about our content um, in person, seeing both of y'all's interesting looking faces and <laughs> you mean our unmistakable doppelgangers <laughs> oh yeah that if, if listeners haven't heard about how you're each other's doppelgangers they'll have to just go back and figure out that story but i wanted to start our content off this week to talk about a piece written by one of our former interns which is a plug for our internship because we have just had some fabulous interns who are able to serve us and serve the church and help educate us and equip us in matters that are important to us as believers. So if you're interested in that, go to our website, erlc.com backslash internship to learn more. But this piece by Andrew Bertadotti is titled, What Life is Like in the U.S. for an Immigrant, One Man's Journey from Religious Persecution in Pakistan. And so this is a friend of his that, that has a ministry to refugees because he and his family know what it's like to move from a country into another country where they don't speak the language, they don't live in the same way. It can be a terrifying experience, a very scary experience to be plucked from one place and put into another place. But I also wanted to highlight this piece because it makes me thankful for the religious freedom that we have here in the United States. And we forget that that's not the reality 
around the world in many places, and that certainly wasn't this gentleman and his family's reality. He was forced out of his country because he was working for a nonprofit, a faith-based nonprofit, and received threats that if he didn't cease his community work, he and his family would be killed and or harmed. And it highlights to me also the important work that we do here at the ERLC concerning religious liberty. It's important that here in the United States and around the world, people are able to live in accordance with their sincerely held beliefs. So I encourage you to check out this article. You can also look up our topics on our site and look up religious liberty, and we will have a host of resources regarding that topic as well if you'd like to educate yourself. The second article is by Liren Barnett, And her article is titled, Three Ways to Be Intentional with Your Singleness. And this article is uh, especially important to me because I was single until I was 34. So I wrestled with singleness. I, I wrestled with what is my importance in the kingdom? What's my role in the kingdom in the midst of singleness? How should I be serving? What should I be doing? How can I feel as if I'm not missing out? And I'm not saying that single people are missing out. I'm saying that's how I felt as an individual. So I constantly wrestled with this. So I appreciate her thoughts. She tells us to embrace solitude, not isolation. So obviously the two things are very different. To serve others in the midst of your singleness, and yet there's a bit of a paradox there because you don't want to overextend yourself as well uh, because we all have limits and then tie yourself down to the local church, which especially in this day and age, many people married and single alike are not tying themselves down to the local church. Many Christians are not. So I appreciate her robust theology of the local church and the importance of as a believer, embracing the community that God has given you a family within a family bought by the blood of Christ. Finally, there's a piece that I wanted to highlight by Heather Rice Minus. She's the VP of Government Affairs and Church Mobilization for Prison Fellowship, which is the nation's largest Christian nonprofit serving prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. An amazing ministry that we are so thankful to partner with time and time again. And this piece and then the piece earlier by Andrew Bertadotti Uh, reminds me of how as Christians we are to be mindful of, aware of, and serve vulnerable people. And this piece is titled, A New Documentary Sheds Light on Reentry After Prison. A New Day One, which is the title of the documentary by Prison Fellowship, covers the hopes and hardships of formerly incarcerated individuals. And these are individuals that in our daily life, we may not or often are not thinking about, sadly. These are people who have paid their debt to society, who are coming back into society, but face trials that we would not uh, be able to comprehend. So Heather says, more than 600,000 people return home from incarceration each year. Often they leave prison without much support or stability. Oftentimes they can't they have trouble getting an ID, they've got nowhere to go, they they only have like a bag of possessions. And so then in the midst of that, they're up against not being able to find a way to support themselves so that they can um, settle themselves and root themselves back into society. So we wanted to highlight this, Prison Fellowship wanted to highlight this because as believers We're called to uphold justice, yes. We're called to care for the vulnerable and hurting populations, all in the name of showing and living out the hope of the gospel. 
We are a people who were set free from the prison of our sin. And so we want to show a picture of that spiritual reality in people's physical lives as well. People who are set free from physical prisons after paying their debt to society, we want to bring them the hope of the gospel and help equip them with the practical things that they need to live their lives and their second chances again. Look, Lindsay, you've done it once again. You put together this just really wide array of pieces that kind of shows the work that we're doing at the URLC all the time. So uh, Andy's piece, uh, One Man's Journey from Religious Persecution in Pakistan, is a is a helpful look at why we are so passionate about the cause of religious freedom and trying to promote it both in the United States and around the world. Uh, this, this piece on singleness is also really helpful because— uh, I'm having conversations with with my friends who who are single and who are a little bit a little bit older and they desire marriage and but they're walking through this season of life and they're they're seeking to be faithful to the Lord and as they are going through that trying to be purposeful and mindful of not wasting this season but to, to receive it as a as a gift from the Lord which is full of purpose uh, that that's the heart behind these kinds of articles and then then finally your uh, your one from Heather Rice Minus here on reentry after prison so I had a close family member who was. Uh, incarcerated for a number of years and watched the whole process from uh, going into prison, uh, the time there, and then and then the reentry. And, and for this person, it was an unbelievably uh, successful uh, reentry in society that, that led to flourishing. But I know so often that is, that is not the case. Not only that, but I think a lot of times people are tempted to see people who have been incarcerated as, as less than or unworthy of redemption. And as Christians, like redemption is the heart of our story because we know that we serve a God who, who came for us, who redeems us from sin and from hell and from all kinds of bondage. And so as we are thinking about even those who are, who are coming out of prison, that's one reason that the, at the URLC we're so honored to partner with Prison Fellowship. And Andrew's piece is uh, particularly timely because uh, with what we're seeing this week transpire in Cuba, which we'll we'll cover in the culture section. I mean, there it's easy to get um, wrapped up right in our American bubble and not realize that there are conflicts and hotspots around the globe where people are fleeing for their lives, uh, for their. Um, well-being, whether it's on matters related to religious persecution or just because, like in the case of Cuba, an authoritarian government is cracking down on essential uh, human rights. And um, so I'm really thankful that that Andrew uh, put together this thoughtful piece uh, for our audience. And um, so, yeah, it's just a good reminder that uh, we as Christians here in our American context, especially, uh, we should care about the plight of individuals across the globe. That's very well said, Josh and Brent. Thank you for adding those thoughts and that explanation. It's true. We are a people of redemption, and we oftentimes, I oftentimes, forget that. And we're called to live lives of redemption in the midst of hurt and chaos and instability. We're called to point to the reality that, as Isaiah says, God is the stability of our times. He's the stability of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And and so we are just thankful to be able to point to that reality in small ways through the topics that we're able to cover and the way that we're able to educate and equip fellow brothers and sisters so that we can stand on the solid ground that is Christ in the midst of um, all the turmoil that we see in our culture today. 
So as I point out almost every time, we have a host of other resources on our site. They are free for you to check out, and we would love for you to go to our site and and find those and text them to friends that you know are in need of them. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to our culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on. Okay, we begin this week with an issue that uh, largely has flown under the radar uh, because of, you know, what we've been dealing with across the globe um, over the last year and a half with the COVID-19 pandemic, and it has to do with overdose deaths. So the CDC is reporting that drug overdose deaths hit a record in the year 2020. And this comes to us from Axios. So this is what it says. The shocking figures, which represent the sharpest annual increase in at least three decades, reflect the proliferation of the synthetic opioid fentanyl in the illegal narcotic supply and the pandemic's toll on the opioid crisis. So the CDC reported that there were over 93,000 deaths, uh, according to provisional data that they released uh, this week. There were an estimated 72,000 deaths from drug overdoses in 2019. So this represents an increase of well over 20,000 deaths. And the reason I raise this is because it just shows that in the midst of our isolation and quarantining and rightful focus on our attempts to eliminate the spread of COVID-19, there were individuals in the midst of that who were dying, these deaths of despair, because There was no community in many instances. There was no one uh, to reach out to. And it's just kind of, if you back up out of this, it's this larger kind of commentary on our culture of we are isolating ourselves. And I would submit kind of drowning ourselves in these sort of fake relationships uh, with social media as opposed to real community. And I see this as an opportunity for the church to really step in and foster opportunities for connection and deeper relationship, which is which is what God created us to have. Uh, it's not good for man to be alone. And a lot of times it gets used in the context of marriage, but honestly, it's used for male and female in the context of just having good relationships with those around us. Yeah, Brian, I got to tell you, uh, before you highlighted that, that was not even on my radar, which is, you know, a good reason to bring it to people's attention, but also for us to uh, just kind of open our eyes. You know, we we don't even think about uh, how often, I think for so long we were going through the pandemic and just ready to get our lives back and move on and, and just go back to, well— like I hate to say it, for some of us, uh, this kind of me-centered world that we that we live in. And so uh, that is just shocking. And uh, man, I'm grateful that you highlighted it. I have family members that have struggled with addiction issues and have seen some of this stuff up close, some of this this pain and this heartbreak. And my family member has friends who have overdosed or struggled just for a long time with addiction. And so it's a reminder that— um, that these lives are precious because they are made in God's image. But it's also a reminder that in the midst of a fallen world, sometimes things aren't so easily fixed, you know, quote unquote fixed, that people have oftentimes marathon length struggles with addiction and other things. And 
as believers, we've got to be willing to put in the hard work and like Josh said, to turn from a me-centered lifestyle and be willing to get there in there in the mess with them and help them, help pick them up when they fall down again and again and again and point them to the the hope that they can have in Christ. Well, while we were on the COVID-19 front, there was an interesting uh, development this week as it relates to the issue to uh, raise awareness about COVID-19 and the uh, the vaccines. So admittedly, as an aside, uh, I went on, uh, on my break, my vacation. I turned 40 on, on that break. Whoa. Yes, so, he did. Yeah, so I, I'm an old man. Just rolling the, down the backside of that hill. Mm-hmm. This story, this story is going to confirm that I am an old man because I have no idea <laughs> who this person. Is. I know it's a big it's deal. And look for the demographic that the the White House is trying to reach uh, with these outreach and engagements efforts. It makes total sense. I had no idea who this was when it appeared, but our audience should know because this is is very serious. So CNN reports that pop sensation Olivia Rodrigo visited the White House on Wednesday to meet with President Joe Biden and his chief COVID-19 medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, to record videos to encourage young people to get vaccinated against the novel coronavirus. She said, quote, I am beyond honored and humbled to be here today to help spread the message about the importance of youth vaccination, Rodrigo said from the White House press briefing room podium. Youth vaccination rates continue to lag significantly behind the general American population. So if you're like me and you're not quite familiar uh, with this artist's work, you may be asking, well, why her? This is why. The videos will be featured on the 18-year-old's social media channels as well as the White House's official accounts. Rodrigo is the singer of hits Driver's License and Good For You, which I know Josh listens to quite a bit. And she has more than 28 million followers across her channel. So that that right there is why the, the White House wanted to team up here with Miss Rodrigo and make sure that they reach her audience. So that's, I'm encouraged by that. We obviously need to try and encourage more people to get vaccinated. And I'm, I'm glad that Miss Rodrigo stepped up to the stepped plate. Stepped up here. to the yes. plate. I'm right there with you, Brent. I am not as old as 40, but I am. <laughs> you just act like it. I'm right there with oh, you, Brent. Whatever. Actually, I'm not even close. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm right there with you in the sense that I'm not as old as 40, but I have no idea who this is. And I saw it on the news uh, today, and I had seen something else about her in the past. I was like, who is this person? I have no idea what songs those are. And the the great thing about getting older is that you just stop caring. But I remember how old I thought my parents were, my grandparents, when they didn't care. But I guess now I realize it doesn't matter. Now, Josh may know because he's the baby among us, and I think has a birthday in, what, two days? And he's turning 23 or something? 24. So, yeah, 24. <laughs> so uh, do you know who she is? So I got to get in on this conversation. Here, here we go. Uh, number one— I did not know the name of this person, but I did know the song Driver's License. I know that because it was one of those like huge, huge songs that everybody knows. And people listening to this podcast are probably cringing because we're talking about this thing that everybody knows about. And they're like, how are you this out of touch? So we do culture. We do less pop culture here, but we, um, you know, we're doing our best. So anyway, here's the thing about that song, uh, Driver's License. I listened to that song because it was, you know, super popular. And I have no idea why it's called driver's license. So maybe I just couldn't make out the words or maybe the words aren't in it. But in any case, uh, total mystery to me. But here's here's something else I wanted to say. Uh, I am 
really thrilled to see uh, the White House uh, take these steps. I have been kind of disappointed uh, with some of the kind of reactionary craziness that I've seen from some people uh, where the idea was floated that maybe they would send people door to door to try to get people vaccinated and that turned into they're coming to uh, take away your Bibles and your guns kind of thing. Um, Look, I think that it, it has been uh, pretty clear so far that vaccines, uh, the decision whether or not to get a COVID vaccine has been a has been a personal choice. Uh, we have tried to leverage our voices and our influence to uh, encourage people to get vaccinated. Uh, I think that the data is overwhelmingly convincing that, that you are better off if you are vaccinated and the vast majority of um, people who are struggling with any kind of serious complications or hospitalizations uh, from COVID now are those who are unvaccinated. So we want to encourage you to do that, but we don't see any signs here that, that any is going to compel you to take it, at least not in terms of the government using its um, its power to force us to do this. Last thing on this uh, soapbox is that, look, when I was a kid, I used to wonder how my friends' dads were all so uncool because I was like, you know, surely there was a time in your life when you were a cool person, right? Like when you wanted people to like you and you wanted to wear clothes that people would like and, you know, just not be a boring stick in the mud. I now have found the answer. I have crossed the threshold where I want to be cool. And now I just want to be me. And I find every time there is a new thing, I'm annoyed by it. I'm not interested in learning about it. So I have become my friend's dad's. That's who I am now. <laughs> you are your friend's dad's. It's so much harder to be cool in a social media age, too. Like, the, just imagine the pressure. So um, I won't go down that rabbit trail because this is about vaccines. So uh, I guess the, the moral of the story here is get vaccinated and Josh, Brent, and I are not cool. We're not cool. Well, I mean, to be clear, I I applaud these kinds of efforts. I mean, I was the target demographic when uh, Dolly Parton was the the big media figure. (laughs) Really? Oh, I love Dolly. I think Dolly Parton is actually probably one of the most underrated figures in country music history. Mm -hmm. All right. uh, Moving on. As we uh, talked about earlier, the protests in Cuba – Uh, is a a major story that is dominating international headlines. So we'll stay with CNN for this next report. And in that report, it states, anti-government activists in Cuba say that more than 100 people have been arrested or are missing on the island following widespread protests on Sunday. One person died during clashes with police on Monday, Cuba's Ministry of Interior said Tuesday, according to state-run radio. These are the largest protests on the island in decades, as Cubans complained about a lack of food and medicine as the country undergoes a grave economic crisis aggravated by the COVID-19 pandemic and U.S. sanctions that are in place. In San Antonio de los Baños, a city of about 46,000 people to the west of Havana, hundreds of Cubans took to the streets on Sunday, fed up after nearly a week of electricity cuts during the sweltering July heat. So, um, folks, you know, you just may need to remember this uh, for a wider historical context. Uh, The U.S. has had an embargo against Cuba for decades now uh, because of the authoritarian government that is in place, controlled for many years by one family, the Castro family. Uh, It's now changed hands. Uh, but it is still run by a brutal dictator that cracks down on a number of the freedoms that we honestly take for granted here in the United States. Cuba is facing a surge in COVID-19 cases, and this is all happening against the backdrop of crackdowns uh, by this government. And that's why individuals are taking to the streets in Cuba. This is a wider-ranging debate on our policy towards Cuba. Uh, President Obama, during his time, 
wanted to relax uh, some of the sanctions, uh, opened a consulate in Havana, uh, and under President Trump, some of those were rolled back. Uh, if you asked members of the Cuban community in South Florida, a number of them would tell you that the authoritarian government there needs to go. Uh, and there are some folks who say, no, we need to open up all kinds of trade uh, to Cuba. So it, this is a, there's a lot of sides uh, to this. But as Christians, we need to continually be mindful of the citizens who are there who are continually dealing with the weight of this uh, tyrannical government that is in Cuba. Yeah, so the New York Times Daily podcast uh, did an episode this morning on the situation in Cuba. And so if you are not in a position to have followed all of the details, that is a really good place, uh, like as a one-stop shop, to get kind of caught up on a lot of the background and, and what's going on there right now. This is absolutely a situation where Christians need to uh, to pray. There are a lot of Christians in Cuba uh, who are seeking to, uh, to minister to others, uh, even in the midst of all of this. And what we're talking about uh, is a government that frequently uh, commits just egregious human rights violations that keeps its people uh, in subjugation. And we would just say that what is happening right now uh, is obviously important uh, because there are people who are right now just just speaking out and, and standing up for freedom that potentially may spend the, the rest of their lives uh, in prison. There are, there are those who are fighting right now uh, for the same kind of basic rights and liberties that we as Americans, uh, American citizens enjoy every single day, and, and they don't have access uh, to those things. And some of them are going to pay a dear price for it. So this, this absolutely matters. All right. So these next two uh, stories come to us from Baptist Press, and they're both pretty significant religious liberty wins. Uh, that have taken place in the in the last week, and so we'll just kind of take them together. The first uh, took place in Washington D.C. this week. The District of Columbia has agreed to pay two hundred twenty thousand dollars in legal fees in a settlement with the SBC's own Capitol Hill Baptist Church. The settlement comes nine months after a federal court ruled the government could not prohibit the Southern Baptist congregation from meeting outdoors with proper safety measures in place during the COVID-19 pandemic. The July 8th settlement agreement followed an October 2020 decision by a federal judge to block enforcement of D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser's restrictions on religious gatherings. The judge ruled the district's limitations during the pandemic, quote, substantially burden CHBC's free exercise of religion and likely violate the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, this was uh, a major win. And we pointed, the RLC, we pointed to Capitol Hill Baptist as an example of a church that was going above and beyond in trying to make sure that it respected the authority of local uh, government officials, uh, did everything that the local city government uh, asked of it in terms of trying to get permits to, to go ahead and meet safely in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And when they let the city know, hey, we have filed all the paperwork and done everything you've asked, the city essentially ignored them. And after multiple attempts, it just became clear that Capitol Hill Baptist was not being treated in the same manner as other similarly situated entities that were also seeking to meet. And Capitol Hill Baptist filed suit. 
and thankfully they got uh, a judgment in their favor. So before we we comment on that, the next story is also one that we were dealing with, and this comes out of Illinois, also from Baptist Press. Religious freedom advocates praised a federal appeals court opinion that protects the freedom of churches and other religious groups in the face of government interference in employment decisions. In a 7-3 decision on Friday, July 9th, the full Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago ruled that the legal doctrine known as the ministerial exception encompasses not only hiring and firing by religious organizations, but the supervision of ministers during their employment. The opinion overturned a previous two-to-one decision. The case involved a hostile work environment claim by Sander Demkovich, the music director at a Chicago-area Catholic church, who alleged discrimination based primarily on his sexual orientation and health problems. When he was fired after marrying his longtime male partner, he filed suit against the church and the Archdiocese of Chicago. The court, in coming back with its opinion, actually cited our brief, the ERLC's brief, the legal brief, that we filed to the court saying, hey, this is an instance of ministerial exception. Uh, There is no reason for governing authorities, or even the courts to weigh in on a matter like this, uh, because this is wholly uh, within the sphere of religious liberty, and these church affairs should not be interfered with uh, by the state. And that's exactly what the court ruled. So both of these cases taken together are significant wins, I would submit, uh, for religious freedom and for churches to conduct their affairs without the state burdening them um, with any sort of interference. Those are encouraging religious liberty wins. And I feel like we have posted some stuff recently or within the last year or so where we have been encouraged by several more religious liberty wins here in the United States. And I don't want to come off as just praising the ERLC, but even before I was aware of what the ERLC was, I'm thankful that this organization and the people who who make up the organization were working to protect our religious freedoms. We're working to, to speak to our laws and policymakers and say, you know, these kinds of things are not okay. People should be able to operate in a way that is in line with their convictions, And now I'm thankful to get a front row seat to the work that is being done and the victories that are being won in this area. Yeah, I mean, we want to say uh, congratulations and just how thrilled we are to our friends at Capitol Hill Baptist because, as Brent said, they were exemplary in the way that they conducted themselves. They were a model for other churches of how to uh, how to deal with conflict with your local government. And it is the case that, you know, even though we think, uh, like you said, Lindsay, we've reported that, especially at the level of Supreme Court, uh, religious liberty has been on an epic winning streak. Uh, there are governments all across the United States that have demonstrated uh, hostility toward houses of worship and people of faith, and uh, that's why the RLC exists to do the kind of public advocacy uh, work to engage on these issues, to make sure that religious freedom for everyone is something that everyone is able to enjoy and to ensure uh, that a government, you know, in our case, uh, one that is supposed to be of the people, by the people, for the people, uh, doesn't discriminate against its citizens as they seek to practice their religious faith. And so uh, everything, I mean, both both of these situations that, that Brent just mentioned are incredibly uh, encouraging to me. And it's just one more sign that religious liberty is is not going anywhere. It is fundamental to American life. Yeah, and just to to remind our our listeners, uh, 
the context there was the local health officials in Washington, D.C. said, hey, we shouldn't have meetings indoors. And so, you know, restaurants are closed, movie theaters, et cetera. And, and that also extended to, to church gatherings indoors. For a long time, Capitol Hill Baptist actually met at a satellite location across the, the Potomac River there in Northern Virginia. But then when things slowly started opening up and there was created this sort of uh, credentialing process for churches to begin meeting again, Capitol Hill Baptist did all that. And remember, all they were seeking to do was meet outside on their church property uh, with everyone wearing masks. I mean, they were going uh, above and beyond. They weren't even petitioning to meet inside. And and so uh, this just, it's a credit to uh, Pastor Mark Dever and the elder board at that particular church and the ways that they went about this. And so this is significant for them and it's significant for religious liberty. All right, finally, big sporting news this week. I mean, I was particularly thrilled because this is a great week for baseball. Uh, the All-Star Game took place this week. And so CBS is reporting this. Toronto Blue Jays first baseman Vladimir Guerrero Jr. appeared in his first MLB All-Star Game on Tuesday night, and he made the most of the opportunity too. Guerrero recorded a historic home run, won the game's most valuable player, and had some fun along the way. The voters deemed that his home run was enough to award him the game MVP designation after the American League won by a score of 5-2. to two. Guerrero, who's 22 years old, is the youngest player to ever win the All-Star Game MVP honors. And as I was watching the broadcast, they kept note of this. Apparently, over 40 players, this was their first ever All-Star Game. Uh, so this was a, a relatively young uh, All-Star matchup and... Um, Honestly, I was just thrilled to see baseball being played. It was a full stadium there in uh, Coors Field in Colorado. As a Braves fan, I still lament the fact that this was not uh, taking place in Atlanta, but that's okay uh, because I got to see baseball by All-Stars. It's a good game. About the only thing that wasn't good was the uniforms. Mm. They were roundly mocked on social media because they were— Well-deserved mockery. They were pretty hideous. Yeah. What did they look like? Uh, softball uniforms, <laughs> pajamas. Uh, they like pajamas. <laughs> yeah, the, the National League, they were wearing all white, so that's okay. But the American League, they were like in this all-navy blue outfit. I mean, you, resident uniform critic out there, Dean and Sarah of City Church, Tallahassee, was not impressed. I got to tell you, Dean has single-handedly upped my interests in uh, you know sport uniforms because, truthfully, uh, I just didn't care. Ever. I would have never even, like, noticed. But now, like, I have become uh, at least someone who can appreciate that. I'm not nearly a connoisseur or anything like that. I don't have these really informed takes. But, yeah, ba bad stuff at the All-Star game. Maybe they just didn't want to forego the pajamas that they had spent the last year and whatnot in during COVID. Perhaps. Because <laughs> it is not fun to put back on real clothes after living in stretchy clothes all your days during COVID. Stretchy clothes. I'm still, stretchy wearing, I'm, clothes. I'm still wearing my stretchy clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Josh, Josh is in sweatpants right now. <laughs> yeah. It's just not, it's not fun. It is, it is fun to see uh, sporting events largely back to normal. It kind of still feels like the Twilight Zone. Like, did we just experience what we experienced last year? It's easy to kind of forget. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there were some big sport. I mean, we had the All-Star Game wrap up. Uh, Wimbledon concluded over in the UK. Yeah, and then also in London, uh, the Euros wrapped up with uh, England losing to Italy. 
uh, after they finished uh, regulation tied one to one, Italy won with penalty kicks afterwards. So it was a, it was a good sports week. Go sports. Go sports. Although the um, <laughs> man, sports. I mean, the home run derby was the highlight for me. You did. You, you liked you liked Pete Alonso. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I, th- I thought you didn't watch sports, Josh. You watched the home run derby. You watched the home run derby. Me and my son were sitting there watching it. Just guys just cranking the ball yeah. out of the man. It was unbelievable. So Pete Alonso uh, from the New York Mets, first baseman from the New York Mets, he he won it and he just went off. I got to tell you though, I thought the most exciting part was the home run off between mm-hmm. uh, Juan Soto from the Washington Nationals and Shohei Otani from the Los Angeles Angels. That was actually pretty cool. It was pretty spectacular. They went into home run derby overtime twice, Lindsay. Mm. That sounds thrilling. <laughs> it was. Oh, it was. My, I'm on the edge of my seat. My kids just loved it. It was it. so cool. It, my kids loved it. So, all right. Well, so that's enough uh, for sports. As, as Josh said, we don't often do pop culture things, but we spent an inordinate amount of time on sports this week. Uh, so, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at this week in culture. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Uh, I'll actually go first this week because I think that my colleagues are racking their brains on what they're going to bring to you in the lunchroom today. So while we're doing that, let me just say this. One of the things that I missed the most uh, during the pandemic that I have been, you know, so glad to be back in the swing of things is going to the movies. Going to the movies is like a Western family thing. Like me, my dad, my brothers, cousins, we just love uh, going to the movies. And so uh, I've been going back for a while now. I was really glad to revive that AMC A-list membership. And so uh, I went uh, this past weekend to see Black Widow, which is, you know, the latest movie in the Marvel franchise. I don't know what phase we're in now, maybe phase four, phase three. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it was awesome. Now, look, I'll put in the same disclaimer we have all the time. Uh, There was some language in there that obviously wasn't crazy about, and it is a superhero movie, which means that they're, you know, they're fighting people. Uh, But it was a really, really great movie. It absolutely held up. And honestly, uh, Florence Pugh ends up being the star of the show. And so if you don't know who that is, uh, but you're, or you're just looking for a place to jump into the Marvel series, this is actually a pretty fine place uh, to go and, uh, just check things out because this movie was really, really fantastic and it held up. You remember that time we went to the movies for to watch Godzilla? I do remember the time you drug me to see Godzilla. And it and was, wasn't that an awesome time? It was terrible. terrible. But Brent Listen, loved it. When Dr. Andrew he T. Walker it. can walk out of that and feel like, yeah, that's was, was pretty good, you know, use of my time. I feel like I feel like your your criticism just holds no water. That's that's all right. I just you know Godzilla is not it doesn't do it for me. King Kong doesn't do it for me. Um, King Kong doesn't do it, for, but Godzilla does. Okay, and I mean, who doesn't want to watch a giant lizard destroy buildings? That's the whole point. Like I remember one time somebody was like, "Oh, it doesn't have a plot," and it's like that's the point. Yes. Yeah. It's not supposed to have a plot. I'm I'm glad we also went to see like Justice League or something together, and that was for me a much better time. Uh, ben Affleck in the Batman suit is not a Dude, good time. Batfleck for was easily the third best <laughs> Batman. Batfleck. <laughs> he was easiest the what? Easily the third best Batman. Third best Batman. Yeah, I mean, no. you know, uh, yeah. Mike. Who's Ke- your first? Michael Keaton is the is really. The very, yes, Michael Keaton is the best. Uh, no, Keaton. I really like Christian Bale as Batman. I mean, I mean, Christian Bale was awesome, and but. Christian Bale looks like a superhero. No, he Michael doesn't. Keaton. He doesn't look like a superhero. No, Michael Keaton kind of looks like your unassuming billionaire. Your dad. Your dad. <laughs> <laughs> Same <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> unassuming billionaire. Although most unassuming billionaires look like dads, let's be honest. <laughs> so, anyways. So, speaking of unassuming billionaires who look like your dad, although this one does not look like my dad, is uh, 
Richard Branson, and you know he owns Virgin Atlantic and and lots of other things, and obviously because he's a billionaire, uh, and he just went up into space. He had the goal to uh, build the spaceship. I guess y'all are gonna have to correct me. This is what the lunchroom would look like anyway. Beat out Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon and Blue Origin. Who's Blue Origin? His space company. No, space. Oh, oh, Jeff Bezos's space company. That's the thing to do now. If you're a billionaire, you got to have a space company. Yes. Well, somebody was saying when we were talking about this, like, why would they want to do this? I'm like, because they, they, they're, they're these people who have the drive to do better and do things that haven't been done before. Plus, they have billions of dollars. What are you going to—you got to spend up your money before you die. What are you going to do with it? Can't take it so, with you. Yeah, so they uh, they build these spaceships and try to go to space. Maybe so that's anyway. what Jesus meant about not storing up your treasures on Earth. Take it, build take it to space. <laughs> anyway, y'all know how I feel about space. I would not go. I would not do this. You could not pay me to do this. I would not want to go to space. I guess he didn't go all the way up into space, or how There's about you fill debate. everyone in? There's a big debate right now about whether or not uh, he actually went to space because he didn't go above, and I'm going to butcher this, but the Kármán line, uh, which is 62 miles above sea level, he only went 53.5 miles, which just makes you kind of go, bro, like that's like running 25 miles of a marathon. Like what What happened? But in any case, well, yeah. Well, that was, that was the shade that Bezos's folks kind of threw. to. Oh, like he's doing his thing. When when wait when we launch later this month, I think it's July twentieth. When we launch later this, we're going above. That's right. That line. That's right. And so we're doing two different things. He's going on a nice flight. We're going to space. But here, I just read this in the article: NASA, Air Force, Federal Aviation Administration, and some astrophysicists consider the boundary between the atmosphere and space to begin fifty miles up. So if you're going with all those people, but so take that, honestly, Bezos. honestly, with these stories and, and these um, opportunities, them trying to go into space, I really thought we were just going to have follow-up news stories about dead billionaires because to me, that's what happens when you go to space. Well, I hate to be this way, but the, the stakes here are really, really high because if one of these like high-profile billionaires were to die in, in one of these accidents, I mean, in one of these accidents, in one of these like trips or something, that, that would set back the idea of space travel decades. Moral of the story, I guess if you're a billionaire, spend your money and go to space, but I'm not going with you. That's the price you pay. (laughs) That's the price you pay. (laughs) I'm sure he cares. (laughs) He's grieving deeply about that. So Brent, take us, well, away from space, back to to planet Earth, maybe. So uh, longtime listeners, friends of mine, y'all, you will know that I think the year breaks down basically into two seasons. Christmas music season and patriotic music season. So I'm still in the latter, uh, although Christmas music season is, is quickly, quickly approaching. And I'm, I'm grateful to God for that reality. But anyway, so uh, I'm, I'm just in this mindset. I just got through reading a great book about uh, James Madison. I'm reading another one about uh, a Supreme Court justice. But recently I stumbled upon, and I can't believe I never saw it when it came out, probably because I didn't have HBO, but the John Adams miniseries. Own it. From uh, 2008. I thought it was more recent than that. You just was, found this thing? Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I've never watched it. What? what you a, call yourself patriotic. Yeah, I don't exactly. even call myself exactly. patriotic, although I am, but I don't call myself that, I guess. I don't know. That's right. Anyway. And this is a Twitter podcast bio. about you. <laughs> and and 
I know about John Adams, and no, I, own I knew it. this I kn- isn't even her lunchroom. No, I knew. <laughs> yeah, no, I knew about it. I just I've I've never had HBO, and I've never had the ability to to see it before. Oh, just side note, you call yourself patriotic. Have you watched Band of Brothers? That's like one of my all-time favorites. Okay. I routinely yeah, cite checking. that. So apparently you haven't paid attention when you I do. You're going to be canceled. Cite that. So anyways, uh, what what a fantastic series. I mean, this is quickly, I'm halfway through, uh, my wife and I have been watching it, and it is quickly climbing my charts as like must-watch TV. It is so good. So good. So I'm I'm just... I think that whole founding era was just fascinating, and um, their marriage in particular was fascinating. Their too. marriage is, uh, yes, their marriage in particular is is fascinating. Abigail Adams was a rock. I mean, John Adams mm-hmm. married up in a way that changed the country. You don't really, you don't do better than that. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's right. So, um, but I love the the way that all the characters from, I mean, based on what I've seen so far, are historically accurate in their depiction. And uh, yeah, gosh, it just it just gives me in this this post Independence Day moment that we're in. It just it just gives me a greater appreciation for the founding of this country. You know, with its flaws uh, or not, uh, this this country that uh, we have the ability to call home, that we're privileged to call home, uh, is is truly it was a special moment. And um, so yeah, I'm just I'm I've got all the America feels right now. Well, I've seen the uh, John Adams series. I also own it, Lindsay. And um, I've seen it, I don't know, a few dozen times probably. I absolutely love that series. And it has, um, yeah, it's a, it's a July 4th must, man. So I'm, I'm glad to see it has found its way into the Leatherwood home. Yes, I'll, I'll have to go home and convince my husband to maybe watch that with me. Ah, so your husband's also not a patriot apparently. Mm-mm. Man, well, I'm going to rescue this podcast and say, hey, go ahead and uh, listen to uh, some good patriotic music. Maybe watch The Patriot on Netflix and mm. then, um, mm. you know, just go out and buy or go to Amazon or whatever you have to do to get the John Adams series and watch that too. Uh, but for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening. We absolutely love hanging out with you guys every week and talking about what's going on at the URLC and in the world of faith and culture. So until next week, uh, if you like the podcast, please uh, consider sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you and being back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.